Um, if you are joining us uh, for the first time or coming back, you'll know that we're continuing our series in Hints of Hope, Jesus in the Pentateuch, where we've been going through the last few weeks, and we're, we've looked that the Christian story began before Christmas, okay? That the Christmas story began before Christmas, and this became all the more clear to me last night as I was sitting with some family. Uh, we were talking um, about, about the Christmas story. We read the Christmas story to the children before they opened their gifts uh, there at my brother's house. And uh, as always happens uh, on a Saturday night, anytime I'm generally hanging out with somebody, somebody always asks, well, what are you preaching on tomorrow, Pastor? Huh. I'm saying, well, uh, uh, Jesus. That's always the answer. So if you, if you, you give that answer, you're probably going to be okay. And they said, well, what, what, what text of the Bible? I said, oh, we're going to Numbers chapter 24. And they just got this weird look on their face like, Jesus in Numbers? I said, oh, yeah, he's, he's there. All the more reason, kind of the, the way that we today as the church think about the Old Testament as we think that, well, that's just stuff that maybe doesn't matter or doesn't really apply to us. But understand, it's the Old Testament that Jesus grew up loving. It was the Old Testament that the, Paul, that the, the apostles and uh, Paul would continually dig into in order to see Christ and what he's done, and what he's promised, and, and how he's fulfilled that. And so it's the job of the church, the job of a of, of Christian, to see the scriptures, which give life the way that they were meant to be seen. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then last week, we looked at Genesis 49, where that promise was um, both expanded and condensed into one person, primarily Judah, where the scripture says, Judah, your brother shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, from the prey, my son, you have gone up, he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and the, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. And we looked at that passage last week, and then we looked at how John, in the book of Revelation, understood that passage to be primarily speaking about the coming of Christ, where he calls him the, the lion of the tribe. Of Judah, he, he only gets that from this prophecy in Genesis 49. Well, the Pentateuch is a big book, and so I realized I've got about four or five weeks to preach it to you this morning. Um, and so don't worry, we're, we're going to skip over a lot. But let me just kind of fill you in, if you're not familiar with the overarching story of the Pentateuch, is what happens immediately after uh, Jacob gives this blessing to his 12 sons, immediately what happens... And, and, and 50, and then in the opening chapter of Exodus, is we see the people of Israel grow in number. Uh, that they grow uh, in number is so much so that the people in Egypt, the taskmasters in Egypt, begin to get frightened by the size that this country is growing. And so as a, as a way to mediate their fear, they enslave them. And so you get in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, therefore they sat taskmasters over them, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities. Uh, and then in verse 13 and 14, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. 
and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made their work as slaves. So if you're a reader and you're reading this story of the Pentateuch for the first time, uh, you, you're, you, in the back of your mind, Moses and, and the Lord want you to have in your mind this, this picture of a promised coming Messiah, a coming king who's going to set his people free. And then you get to Exodus chapter 1 and you wonder, how's he going to do it? Because you've got the Egyptian uh, pharaoh enslaving God's people. And so what you see is you see that God raises up a man named Moses. And God commissions Moses to go free his people from slavery. And Moses defeats Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt by performing ten mighty signs. The ten plagues, that's in Exodus 7 through 12. And the tenth and the final plague, Moses delivers the people of Israel through the Passover feast, Exodus chapter 12. Moses then leads Israel out of slavery and into freedom by bringing them from the dry sea, from the Red Sea on dry ground. But Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in its waters. Now, if you're a reader of the story, you're like, amen, praise God. But go ahead and flip over to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. This isn't our text this morning. We're just going to make a pit stop here before making our way to Numbers. Because as I've been pointing out to you throughout the the Pentateuch, what Moses has done is he's interwoven inside of the the larger narratives that he's tying. He's tying the larger narratives together with these poetic sections, these, these poems, if you will, in his story. And so we get to Exodus 15, and the whole chapter pretty much is poetry. So let's read it together. Uh, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them up. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them up. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the song that Moses sings. the first time we get praise, a song inside the scriptures here in the middle of Exodus uh, chapter 15. 
And notice what Moses is doing here. This is important, by the way, because it, how does the New Testament actually understand the, the, the Exodus event? How does, how does the New Testament writers think about when they read the scriptures, read, think of Paul as he's opening his Old Testament, he's reading the Exodus, and he's thinking about all that Christ has done, all that he's accomplished. And you know what he did? He's seen the Exodus as a type of salvation by which Christ would then rule. Let me walk this out for you. Number one, it was a deliverance accomplished by God. Notice the song here. Moses has nothing to say about himself. He has nothing to say even about the children of Israel whom are being saved. God is the central figure in the story of Exodus. Number two, it was a deliverance from bondage and oppression to the freedom and dignity of being sons and daughters. Israel became God's chosen people, his possession, his son. This is the culminating event in Exodus where his people are brought out. And throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's this singular event to which all the prophets refer. Don't you remember when God, by his strong arm, brought his children out of Egypt? Number three, it was a deliverance which God accomplished through a man. Moses was God's man. Raised up, preserved, chosen, called, commissioned, and empowered by God. Number four, it was a deliverance which created a lasting relationship between God and Israel. A relationship both of privilege and responsibility. From here on out, God was Israel's God in a very special sense, and they were God's people. From here on out, Israel must not go her own way, but obey the demands of God. You see, the Exodus event is the best type that we have to talk about how God has freed us from our slavery. Only our slavery wasn't to, to Egypt or to taskmasters. Our slavery was to sin. You see, it was a deliverance accomplished by God. Jesus Christ is the central figure in our salvation story. It was a deliverance from bondage and oppressions to the freedom and dignity of sonship. We have now been made one in Christ. It was a deliverance through which God accomplished through one man, Christ Jesus. And it was a deliverance which created a lasting relationship between God and his church. This is how the New Testament authors thought about the Exodus event. And as they would look at it and they would read it and they would see God's mighty hand in the Exodus event, so they would see God's mighty hand in delivering us in Christ. Flip over to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. We're going to zoom in on Numbers 23, then we're going to zoom out, talk about Balaam. Because uh, if, if, if I have a hunch, most of you are probably pretty well familiar with the Exodus story, right? You got the ten plagues in your annual Bible readings, which, by the way, you should do. January's coming up. Go ahead and plan on it. Um, but I imagine most of you probably get through Exodus, you're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And you get the Leviticus and Numbers, and you're like, oh my gosh. What have I gotten myself into? Don't worry, we'll, we'll zoom out in just a minute, but just for a second here, zoom in with me on Numbers 23. Because something significant happens in Numbers 23 and 24, you get this large section of poetry. And again, remember, what Moses is doing as he's writing the story is he's wanting you to see that, that God is setting up for us this coming Messiah. So look at verse 18. Numbers 23. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man, that he should lie, 
or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt, and it's for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold, a people. As a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Now stop for a minute. If you know nothing else about numbers, what this, should, uh, this should sound pretty familiar if you've been coming the last few weeks, right? Look, look, look back at it. Number one, a couple observations. Number one, in verse 21, this is Balaam giving the prophecy. He says, the Lord, the Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Now, this is interesting, because if you know anything about Israel's history at all, what do they not have at this point? They don't have a king. And yet Balaam is saying, I hear the shout of a king is among them. Not only that, look at verse 22. He says, God brings them out of Egypt, and it's like for them the horns of the wild ox. Think, think of Exodus chapter 15, the, the, the long text we just read. But then verses 20, verse 24, he says, As a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself up. You see, what Moses is doing as he's pinning the Pentateuch, he's starting to tie together all these threads. You see, doesn't this sound like Genesis 49? The talk of a lion and a lioness? Doesn't this sound like Exodus 15, where God is described as a warrior and a coming, conquering king? You see, what, what Moses is doing is he's weaving together the fact that God is a deliverer and the promise given to Jacob that Lord is in the midst of Israel. You see, the significance of a coming Messiah was not first made known to us when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Long before the manger, Old Testament prophecies foretold of his coming, the significance of his coming. Now flip over to Numbers 24. If you're there, say amen. Need more time? Say, hold up. We're going to zoom in here for a minute. because, uh, or let, well, First of all, let's, let's zoom out. I said I would do that. What's going on, Pastor, in Numbers 22 to Numbers 24? It, it, you have this prophet named Balaam, who's introduced in Numbers 22 merely as Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor. He's a prophet of international renown, famous for his divination abilities. You see, Balaam was well-studied in ancient religions. He knew all the gods of which all the different people groups would call upon. And so what he did is he turned this, this knowledge into a marketing campaign. He marketed his abilities, and his primary product that he was selling was to sell to the rulers of, of the other folks promises of blessings and curses. You see, he knew which God to call upon. And therefore, what, if, if someone wanted a blessing, he would, he would go in a room and he would call upon whatever God it is that they called upon, and then he would deliver the blessing and the cursing. But what's going on with Moses and the Israelites is at this point, in the story, they're on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. And they come to the land of Moab. And there, King Balak of Moab fears the worst. He's so terrified that he quickly decides to hire this prophet, Balaam. Now remember, Balaam's not a good dude. He's not a, he's not a Christian, okay? 
He, he decides to hire Balaam to curse Israel. And he sends a royal delegation to Balaam's home with the promise of rich rewards for the services that he would provide. And so Balaam, being the marketing man that he is, he knew just what to do. He knew that Israel's God was Yahweh. He had proved himself quite capable of defeating foreign gods who opposed him. And so, so Balaam knew it was useless to invoke the name of some other god to curse Israel, for all other gods had proven impotent before the might of Yahweh. And so to secure a curse against Israel, Balaam knew it was necessary to secure Yahweh's curse against the children of Israel. And so Balaam invited Balak's delegation to spend the night and called upon Yahweh that night. And I just imagine this with me. This isn't in the scriptures, but just use your sanctified imaginations with me. So this is probably something of a show, right? Because we know other gods don't exist. And so uh, I imagine that Balaam would, would go into his room. He'd lock his door as a show. And overnight he would, I don't know what, maybe he doodled. Maybe he called out. Never actually heard anything from response from all these other gods. So you can imagine his surprise that night. Surely he didn't actually expect to receive an answer from the living God. But Yahweh spoke to him. And in that speaking, he refused him to, uh, permission to curse Israel. This is a curveball for Balaam. He doesn't, he's not quite sure what to do with this. And so he sends the delegation, the Moabite delegation, back, packing back up the next morning, insisting, he says, I cannot go against the will of Yahweh. That's what he says. And so Balak, the king, understood this to be a negotiation tactic. He's like, oh, okay, Balaam's going to play hardball with me. He says he can't give me what I want. Maybe he wants more money. Maybe he wants higher delegation officials to, uh, to, to actually go and greet with him. So he, he assesses Balaam's greed for wealth, and he's like, I can play that game. And so he sends back the, the delegation, and there Balaam repeated his line to the second delegation that he could not go against Yahweh. But he showed his true colors because he showed that he was really all in it for the money. Because he invited the servants to stay another night, and there he asked Yahweh what he should do. This time Yahweh answered again to Balaam, to go with the delegation to Moab, but only to speak what he commanded. And so Balaam eagerly gets up the next morning, arises, no doubt hoping that he would gain permission finally from this Yahweh God to curse Israel and thereby get paid. But rather than cursing Israel, he ended up giving them three blessings. Look at, look at Numbers 24. And he ends up giving them three blessings. And Balak the king is outrageously angry. Numbers chapter 24, verse 10. Look at it with me. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. And he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver... And gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord, to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. This brings us to our text this morning. This is Balaam's going to be fourth oracle to King Balak. Balaam's warning introduces this prophecy of the coming of Christ in the very event. Uh, that we actually gather to celebrate at Christmas. 
Look at the text. He, say, he says in verse 14, he says, I'll, he's like, come, listen in, King Balak. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the latter days. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at Genesis 49 of how uh, Jacob began opening up his prophecies. And he said the same thing. Come, I will tell you what will happen in the latter days. This is a, your brain should be going off. Like, oh, okay, something, something special is about to happen here. Look what he says. Verse 15. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High and sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him. This is the, this is the prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheep. Edom shall be dispossessed, and Seir, also his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy survivors of cities. From this text, we get two significant things that come from this. The first is we get a promise of deliverance promise of deliverance. Look at verse 17. He, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. We must notice something here is that this timing, this promise of deliverance is not soon. It's not soon. This is a distant deliverance. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. You see, Balaam lived about 1,400 years before Christ. As Yahweh opened his eyes in verse 15 and his ears in verse 16 to see into the future what would come, he made it clear that this prophecy is a a distant fulfillment. He's saying this isn't going to happen tomorrow. Here we find none of the language that Mark uses in the Olivet Discord about this will happen in this generation. Or in the book of Revelation where it says all these things are soon or at hand. This prophecy was certain to happen, but it would not be realized for a long time to come. As we think about the fulfillment of this prophecy, we must consider its fulfillment to be centuries after giving the prophecy. A significant event would take place centuries after Moses and Balaam lived, which would fulfill this vision. But notice, the fulfillment would not be a generic event but we'd be tied to a specific person because he says, I see him. I behold him. We see this divine deliverance in this as well. The deliverance foretold in the prophecy would be divine in nature. He says, a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Balaam was a diviner. That one, he who recognized, among other things, the stars as gods. And for him, one who came from the stars carried divine authority. Oftentimes in the scriptures, the Bible will recognize the association of pagan gods with with different stars. Amos speaks of this, of a star god that the Israelites worshipped in his day in the book of Amos chapter 5. The king of Babylon, who considered himself a god, was addressed by Isaiah by the self-given title of the shining morning star in Isaiah 14. The imagery of a star carries overtones of divinity. And so the prophesied deliverer that, that Balaam's seen would be divine. That's what he's saying. I see a star coming out of Jacob. He's saying, I see this, this divine person coming out of 
Jacob, and he, he would have a scepter, this, this image of authority. As with the star, the scepter is frequently associated in Scripture with divine authority. We looked at this last week in Genesis 49. The language here unmistakably points to the divine nature of the promised deliverer. He would come as a star and as a scepter, one who has divine authority. And he would be specifically a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Judah, a divine Israelite. We also see that there's this dominating deliverance. You see, the promised divine Israelite deliverer would come to exercise dominion. What it says there, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Just, just in passing, this should sound familiar and uh, reminiscent of the promises in Genesis 3.15, right? It shall crush the forehead there. He will crush the, the head of the serpent. You see, Balaam has been called by King Balak to curse Israel as the Moabites wage war against God's people. Moab here stands for all that opposes Yahweh and his people. So this distant divine deliverer would smash and strike down his enemies, none of whom will escape his domination. And again, there's these overtones that take us back to Genesis 3.15, where it all began. There, we are told that the coming offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Here, we are told that the coming deliverer would smash the forehead of all those who oppose him. There would be those who would try to dominate him, but he would ultimately bring them to utter ruin. You can see the, the, the implication that this would then have for us as we think about Christmas and Christmas time. Who fits the bill of a God-sent deliverer with divine authority, promising to crush all that opposes Yahweh and Yahweh's people? Can this be any other than Jesus Christ? Consider the gospel accounts. Before her and Joseph came together in marriage, marriage, the Virgin Mary discovered that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit and that the child in her womb was the fulfillment of the old Emmanuel, God with us. Is that not the very definition of one sent by God? Sent by God, Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Does this not fit the bill of one who is sent to deliver God's people from that which ultimately opposes Yahweh and his people was not a star associated with Jesus' birth and did not wise men from the east come to worship him in recognition of who he was? Did they not bring him gifts fit for a king? You see, the star of Jacob whom Balaam saw in the distant future was none other than the baby born in a manger more than 2,000 years ago. And he was sent by God with divine authority to deliver you and I from our sins and to crush his enemies, which brings us to the second point, which is this promise about dominion, a promise about dominion. Look at verse 18. Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed, Israel is doing valiantly. You see, the deliverer whom Balaam foresaw in his prophecy would be one who comes exercising dominion. According to this verse, the one who comes from Jacob would come to exercise dominion. And he would do so in one of two ways. One is dominion through possession. Dominion through possession. You see, Edom was a foreign nation distantly related to Israel, which had forbidden Israel to pass through its territory on the way to the promised land. Seir was the land which the Edomites inhabited. Israel was forbidden from attacking Edom during the time of Moses. But the prophecy here 
is that Israel would eventually prove triumphant over Edom. A time would come when Edom and Israel would go to war, and Edom would not come out on top. But utter destruction is not what he has in mind here. Instead, through Israel's triumph, Edom and its land would eventually become the possession of the promised deliverer and his people. It's beautiful. These are enemies of God. He's saying they're going to become the friends of God. They will become his people. It's beautiful. Dominion through destruction, though. There were those who would experience the star's domination, uh, dominion by destruction. Look at verse 19. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This one who would come from Jacob is, of course, the star from Jacob and the scepter from Israel mentioned in verse 17. His enemies would not ultimately withstand his rule. They might resist for a while, but ultimately all who would not bow to him would fall under his judgment as he exercised his divine authority to rule. You see, Balaam's own story tragically foreshadowed this kind of destruction. You see, he realized that as he was speaking to Yahweh, this is the God who is. This is, uh, this is the true and living God. He recognized the blessing of Israel through God, and though he longed to die the death of the upright so that his life would be like the others, that was not his destiny. You see, the New Testament actually reveals a little bit more about Balaam. In, in 2 Peter 2.15, we're told that Balaam actually loved money so much that he ended up finding a way to secure the curse on Israel. Unable to curse Israel directly, Balaam suggested to Balak that he tempt the Israelites not with a cursing, but with idolatry and sexual immorality. That's from Revelation chapter 2.14. The outcome of that story is recorded here in Numbers chapter 25. Verse 1, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. See, ultimately, at the end of the day, Balak in this instant got what he wanted. Namely, Israel to come under Yahweh's curse. Balaam got what he wanted. He got the bounty that Balak had offered. This unfolded not because Balaam cursed the people, but because he taught Balak a surefire way to end up securing Yahweh's own curse against his people. You see, if the Israelites could be tempted to idolatry and sexual immorality... Yahweh's anger would burn against them. Moses reveals Balaam's fate just a few chapters later in verse 31. It says, uh, Israel warred against Midian, and the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. Uh, it lists a few names, and then right at the end it says, they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. See, Balaam was a busted fool didn't know the Lord, but when he came into contact with the Lord, he, he realized who it was he was talking to, and he, he wanted to end up being one of God's people. He wanted to do the right thing, and yet he was swayed. He did not die the death of the upright, but he died in rebellion against Yahweh. Perhaps you're wondering, this, this is all good and well, Pastor, but what does ancient prophecy fulfilled some time ago have to do with us today? The realization that this particular prophecy was fulfilled in Christ places before us an important decision. 
You see, Jesus was the star of Jacob. He was the scepter of Israel. He was sent by God to deliver his people from sin and to exercise dominion in the world. The baby in the manger was indeed the newborn king. He came as a baby with a mission to reconcile sinners, you and I, to himself. How would he do that? He would do that by living a perfect, honoring, law-keeping life. He would perfectly do everything that God expected him to do so that those who would believe in him could have his perfection credited to them. Despite the fact that he never sinned, he would go on the cross in your place, taking the wages of sin upon himself so that he could find, so that we could find life in him. He would rise from the dead, proving that he conquered sin and death and ascend to the right hand of the Father on high, where he rules and reigns from heaven until the appointed day when he will return to judge the living and the dead. You see, at Judgment Day, everybody who has ever lived will stand before the star of David and the scepter of Israel. On that day, there will be one of two destinies. Either Christ will own you as his own possession, having delivered you from the curse of sin by his death and resurrection, or you will face eternal destruction as his enemies are cast into the lake of fire. You see, your destiny depends on your decision in this life. Jesus Christ was born to deliver his people from sin and Satan, and he did so by dying on a cross in your place and in my place. And then rising from the dead three days later, now he extends his free offer of salvation to all who will repent of their sins by faith, embrace his offer of forgiveness and eternal life. If you wish to die the death of the righteous, as Balaam wished to do, the only way for you to do that is to place your trust fully in this star of Jacob, this scepter of Israel, in this Jesus Christ for eternal life. You see, resisting him will result in destruction. Instead, we should submit to him now, find eternal life in the age to come. For those who will not do so, destruction is your certain destiny. But it doesn't have to be. We can believe on Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about Balaam and the choices he made in his life, and though he knew you, though he's seen you, he did not love you. Father, I pray as we examine our own hearts this morning, we once again place our faith in our hope and our trust in you by faith. The one who came as a baby and, and lived as a common man and died the death of a criminal in our place is the same one who offers to us salvation today. May we believe this. May we repent of our sins and follow you as your chosen people. I pray you help us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And then we'll ask the deacons